You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Molly Bentley. During this pandemic, the great hope for saving lives and allowing us to return to our daily routines to a sense of normalcy is the development of a coronavirus vaccine. A vaccine is considered the ultimate weapon in the battle to conquer the coronavirus, just as vaccines have been brought to bear against viral diseases like smallpox, polio, and measles. But here's the thing. While vaccines for coronavirus are being intensively fast-tracked, it may still be 12 to 18 months before they can be deployed. Fortunately, there are other lines of attack being energetically pursued to combat the virus, and those include weaponry that can treat those who've gotten sick. Vaccines are not our only hope. Four tech mechanisms I see are public health. Public health is to stop the transmission and eliminate it from the public if possible, right? Or decrease the severity or flatten the curve, as everybody's been saying. The second is antivirals, which are to treat individuals. But really, if they're effective oral medicine, for example, you could give it to people like in a nursing home, everybody got prophylaxed, you could stop the transmission of the virus locally. A third one is vaccines. Vaccines are designed to mimic what the virus would do to give us immunity that will last a long time and also stop the virus from infecting and transmitting. The fourth one is what are called monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies essentially bypass the vaccine step and they actually identify specific antibodies from humans that are highly effective at blocking the virus from ever entering into a cell. They act like our immune system. And those can be administered like a drug, like an antiviral. And they are antiviral, but they have the advantage over an antiviral potentially of lasting for months, six months, eight months. So all four of those approaches are critical, right? Antivirals, vaccines for long-term immunity, monoclonal antibodies for temporary immunity, and potentially for treatment of an infection. So while we wait for a vaccine to prevent COVID-19, other tools may arrive in the meantime that provide hope that we can slow the spread of infection or treat the disease itself. In this episode, Treating the Virus, we'll look at the three non-vaccine approaches you heard, antivirals, antibody cures, and public health measures. We'll begin with the last two, antibody cures and public health measures, because they both depend on an understanding of the role of antibodies. Yes, antibodies. The disease-battling proteins your body churns out when it detects a threat and that are key to making a vaccine. But antibodies are useful in other ways. Antibody tests, which identify those who have recovered from the disease, allow us to map the spread of the virus. And that's important in deploying public health guidelines, as well as informing the use of treatments. 
Deepta Paracharya is an immunologist at the University of Arizona whose lab is making a test that looks for coronavirus antibodies in a blood draw sample. Dr. Bhattacharya explains when antibodies first appear in an infected person. The first sets of antibodies will start to be formed usually within a few days post-infection. Our ability to detect it is usually highest right around day seven or so after infection, and then that will usually persist for quite some time. If someone is infected with coronavirus, could they produce antibodies and then never get sick? Well, there's a lot of speculation that there's a large hidden population of people that are just like that. And I think that's going to be one of the really interesting results of our widespread antibody tests or how many people are there that are actually immune but had never had any symptoms. I think that from an epidemiological standpoint, I think that would be very interesting to find out. The state of Arizona and the University of Arizona are backing your efforts to create an antibody test. Why are you doing it on the state level rather than waiting for the federal government to come up with a antibody test? It, the real reason is cost and availability. There are some finger prick based tests that are being rolled out right now, one of which is FDA approved. Um, and then there are some other tests that are a little bit closer to what we're doing here at the University of Arizona. But the reality is that those tests are not widely available. And I think if anything, we've learned that time is of the essence and we need the information sooner rather than later. So we're getting the test going here rather than waiting for those tests that might actually take you know, another month or two to get here. And we've been seeing that around the country where the states are acting independently of the federal government because they want to move faster on a response to coronavirus. Now, the U.S. right now has tested about 2 million people. We have not tested as many people as we need, as you just indicated. Uh, and we're also hearing that there are good tests and bad tests and that some of the tests have not been reliable. Do you care to comment on that and why it is that some tests are not doing their job? Yeah, so first, let me um, go through a little bit and talk about the, the main two different types of tests. One of them is to detect the virus directly. So it's looking for virus RNA or nucleic acids. And so that's looking for people who are actively infected and where the virus is still present. Those tests, by and large, are working quite well. I think those are quite reliable. Um, and it is true that a lot of states have taken that test on themselves, but it's by and large by CDC guidelines that those are working pretty well. There is the second test that you've just mentioned, and it's the focus of this interview here, which are antibody tests. And so that's looking for something different. That's looking for, for people who have at some point in the past been exposed to the virus. So that'll turn up positive anytime after a week or so after a person has been infected. So one of the real issues and lessons that the federal government has learned is that they don't have the capacity to roll out and produce these tests as quickly as they would want. And so they have relaxed a lot of the guidelines for what it actually takes to uh, obtain what's called an emergency use authorization. Um, and so on one hand, that's a good thing because it gets tests out in the field sooner. On the other hand, it's a little bit of a problem because these emergency use authorizations are effectively an honor system. So it's basically people checking their own homework. So when a lot of these tests, particularly by commercial developers come out, we don't really have a very good sense as to how well those tests were really validated. So what we're hearing is that uh, the rate of false positives is higher than people would want, meaning that perhaps some of these tests are detecting not this current coronavirus outbreak, but maybe one of the garden variety types that just causes a normal cold from years past. 
I personally have not seen a lot of data on this. I'm only hearing about this mainly through the news. So I don't have a lot of details on exactly what is going wrong in those tests. Can you say more about the benefits, the relative benefits of a prick test, which you you test your finger, um, with having a more thorough blood test when we're looking for these, these antibodies? Yeah, there are pros and cons to both sides of it. The finger prick test can be done at point of care. And so essentially you can have these things in your local doctor's office and then be able to tell you the results right away. In many ways, like a pregnancy test or a test for diabetes, um, very, very quick kinds of things. And so that there's a huge advantage to that. The problem we have right now is availability and cost of those tests. Most of those tests are running about $150 per test. We're anticipating our test to cost probably a little less than $10 per test. And then second thing is basically manufacturing, keeping up with it. I mean, essentially, our tests don't really require essentially all of the equipment to scale up and then to do many of these tests is essentially already in hand. All we really require are blood draws, whereas these finger prick tests require manufacturers to generate one for every single test. And they're just not keeping up with demand at this point. I want to talk more about antibodies in a moment, but first, can you remind us why these tests are so important in mapping the virus, who's infected and who's not, and allowing us one day to maybe go back to some sense of normalcy, although I understand the word normalcy these days has been quite challenged. So two reasons. I mean, one, you raised it earlier, which is that there's this possibility and frankly likelihood that there are a much larger fraction of people who have actually been exposed to this virus than are aware of it. And so some of those people may have been completely asymptomatic. Some of them may have had very mild symptoms and never really thought about it. So from the standpoint of epidemiology and transmission and spread of the virus, those are very important inputs to have to decide how to manage public policy. And when is it safe to reopen the economy? From a public policy standpoint, we need to know how much virus is actually being circulated out there. The second reason, as you mentioned, and and my guess is that many uh, people who are listening to this broadcast have heard of, is that this concept of a passport of immunity, where someone who has these antibodies is basically allowed back into the economy because they're at very, very low risk of becoming infected. So I think those are the two major reasons and thoughts behind developing this antibody test and how that might instruct public policy. Deepta, we've been talking about antibodies. Everyone's heard about antibodies, but I'll go ahead and ask it. What exactly is an antibody? Can you describe for us and maybe give us a mental picture of what these antibodies are doing in our bodies? So uh, very simply, an antibody is a protein that sticks to something. And there's a historical reason as to why it's called that. It's before people had any sort of you know, high-powered microscopy or any of the tools we have now. And so they came up with something. It's like it's anti-something. Antibody is essentially what they came up with. And so that, for historical reasons, is why we still call it that. But I think it's, it's useful to understand a little bit of the developmental biology of how you make an antibody. So the cells that make antibodies are called B cells, and they're called that because they develop in the bone marrow. And essentially the way the developmental process works is that every single B cell makes a different kind of antibody. Now during that development, what happens is that B cells that make antibodies against yourself are removed from the repertoire is what we call it. So essentially all you have left are B cells that express things that don't stick to yourself. But because there's almost an infinite combination of antibodies that can be made, the reality is that somewhere in your body is going to be a B cell that can recognize almost any viral or bacterial or fungal pathogen that comes your way. Once that happens, these B cells start to proliferate like crazy. 
they start to spit out the antibodies that they make. And then as the immune response goes on, there's a competition between different B cells to basically figure out who's making the best kind of antibody. And then at the end of the day, those B cells are the ones that are left and they continue to produce antibodies for quite a long time, months, years, sometimes even for an entire lifetime. So what is the challenge for you and your lab in developing an antibody test? You know, what has been really nice in an otherwise horrible situation is how the scientific community has completely come together, dropped all of the competition that a lot of times drives for the science and basically made it completely collaborative so that we exchange knowledge between different labs freely even before they've been fully published. And so essentially, you know, our antibody test is by and large built on the blueprint of what people have done at Mount Sinai in New York. Um, You know, so the challenge then is actually less scientific than it is just some of the logistical things that you have to do. And I've learned this the hard way. I'm a basic scientist and, you know, I've never developed, I had never had to develop a clinical test before. And so then all these standards and optimizations and reporting structures and making sure that, frankly, there are people around to do blood draws and how are we going to get these rolled out to the rest of the state? It's mainly the non-scientific things that have been the biggest challenge. Antibodies are also being used at this moment to develop therapeutics for COVID patients. Putting vaccines aside, could you give us an overview of what kind of therapeutics can be developed by using antibodies that are not vaccines? Yeah, let me briefly go through the process of how um, the companies and, and, you know, pretty soon our lab too, is identifying some of these antibodies. And so essentially what's happening is that um, labs are taking blood samples from people who have recovered from coronavirus and then basically just checking those B cells one by one to see which of them produce an antibody that is capable of neutralizing the virus, meaning preventing it from productively infecting cells. And so um, there's a number of companies out there that are, I think are already testing these things out in people. And so essentially there's two ways you can think about how one might use these antibodies. One is to treat people who land in the ICU who are having a very difficult time controlling the virus. So if the virus is going crazy, replicating, and the person's immune system is not catching up, uh, then these antibodies have a way of basically reducing those viral loads and allowing the person a chance to recover. So some of it is that. And what's also actually pretty interesting is that people are trying to engineer these antibodies so that they stick around a little bit longer in people once they, once they inject it. Normally, an antibody will only persist for you know, a few weeks or so. And so it's not the same as a vaccine. You know, you could give it to someone and they might be immune for a few weeks, but then after that, they would be susceptible again. So it's not really a substitute for a vaccine in that way. But what people have done is engineer these antibodies so that instead of sticking around for a few weeks, they stick around for a few months. So those are the two ways that people are thinking about it. Again, no matter what you do, those antibodies aren't going to stick around forever when you just inject it. You need the B cells to stick around and make them for a long time. And really, the only way to do that is through a vaccine. So it's not a substitute for a vaccine. But you can imagine that it'd be a very effective intervention, both in people who get very sick, but also from an epidemiological standpoint to prevent transmission. People have done things like this for Ebola, and it's actually worked pretty well. Some of these antibody treatments are being touted as cures. That sounds like that's not what they are, though. Well, I think they probably would be. If someone comes into the ICU, has a high viral load, and you give them the antibody, it, it really would clear the virus. And so in that sense, I think I agree with the terminology, it would be a cure. Uh, When might we see some of those drugs? 
Well, they're being trialed in people right now as we speak. And so, you know, my hope is certainly by the end of the calendar year, some of those things will be out and really being administered. I know that there are people in the San Francisco Bay Area where we are, and of course across the country, who are survivors of COVID-19 and who are donating their blood or their plasma. Do you need to develop a drug out of that? Or this may be very naive, but could you just do a blood transfusion or give someone else your plasma? Would that be enough to help them? Yeah, I mean, and there's a number of groups that are trying that very treatment right now as we speak. Um, They're trying it at Mount Sinai. I know they're trying it. Uh, they had tried it at some hospitals in, in China and Wuhan. Um, and at least the preliminary results actually look pretty promising. The challenge with making that into a drug, Molly, is scale. I mean, you can only bleed someone so many times. Um, and so, you know, whereas what I was telling you about, what we were talking about before in these antibodies, they're called what are called monoclonal antibodies. And essentially, once you make them, you can keep making them and you can make them up to gigantic scale. This plasma therapy, you're really limited by how much blood a person has and how many infected people have actually cleared it. And so it's very difficult to think about a nationwide scalable drug that you could do with this convalescent serum transfers. Well, finally, Deepta, what might the world look like if we don't yet have a vaccine and we know that vaccines are coming, um, but we do have some of these other therapeutics, these antibody therapeutics, and we have really reliable antibody tests. How will that change our lives while we wait for a vaccine? Dramatically, and because I think we can substantially limit outbreaks to make sure that they stay very, very local. Um, and so these widespread global consequences, I think will be substantially mitigated if we know who is infected with this widespread testing, and then be able to administer some of these, say, monoclonal antibodies rapidly to make sure that it doesn't spread beyond the immediate community. Deepta Bhattacharya, thank you so much for speaking with us, and best of luck in the important work that you're doing. Thank you, Molly. Deepta Bhattacharya is an immunologist at the University of Arizona, where his lab is developing a COVID-19 antibody test. So Dr. Bhattacharya's development of this antibody test is clearly important in terms of getting back to uh, normal existence because that way you can tell that this person over here who didn't even know they had contracted the virus did, but they're okay now because they have the antibodies in their system. It's okay to send them back to work. And he also talked about the, the possible arrival of these antibody cures or these drugs that could treat infection. So if you came down with COVID-19, you could treat it with one of these drugs. However, he does stress that although that infection might go away, you would not have the immunity that you would have had you fought off the infection yourself. So it is not the same as developing your own antibodies or being inoculated with a vaccine, but it sure would be terrific for helping fight this disease right now. From antibodies to another anti, antivirals, which could be given to treat infection, but also to control the local spread of the virus. We talk to a researcher developing coronavirus antiviral drugs next. While we wait for a vaccine to prevent infection, we explore other options for treating the virus on Big Picture Science.
we've talked about fighting the COVID-19 pandemic by using a few different tools that rely on antibodies, developing tests that detect them in the blood of those who have successfully battled the disease, which helps us to deploy public health measures, and the development of synthetic antibody drugs, and even the use of plasma from those who have recovered. But another treatment that may arrive while we wait for a coronavirus vaccine does not rely on antibodies. An antiviral works by employing an understanding of how the virus operates to target it directly. In other words, it doesn't try to co-opt the human immune system, but defeat the virus head-on by disrupting how it works. For example, and as you've undoubtedly seen in illustrations, under a microscope, the virus looks like a, a golf ball studded with lots of pointy bits. Those are the spike proteins, and those are what latch onto molecules called receptors that, for instance, line the cells of our lungs. That latching allows the virus to penetrate the cell membrane, deploy its RNA, and go about its beastly business. The purpose of an antiviral drug is to disable those spike proteins chemically, or in other ways impair the working of the virus to halt the invasion. No antibodies required. Antivirals would be used to treat individuals who have been infected and, if given prophylactically, while they won't stop an epidemic, could slow local transmission. Antivirals work by attacking protease enzymes or polymerase enzymes. Now, those both have fancy Greek names, but this is how they work. The polymerase produces a long connected string of proteins, like a, I don't know, an endless belt, and the protease enzyme cuts up that string into the individual proteins that, when let loose in your cells, help the virus replicate. Interfering with one or the other of these enzymes will stop the virus from reproducing. For example, protease inhibitors have been used to treat HIV. One scientist taking the lead in developing a polymerase inhibitor to treat COVID-19 is Mark Dennison director of the Infectious Disease Division of the Pediatrics Department at Vanderbilt University. The drugs he's developing, remdesivir, now in clinical trials in Chicago, and a drug that has a number only, EIDD2801. Both antivirals work by interfering with RNA polymerase, which is the enzyme that the virus uses to assemble the proteins necessary for its reproduction. Dr. Denison and the members of his lab are awaiting trial results to see whether the drugs work effectively in humans. There are many, many steps to why it's challenging to develop antivirals. First, I, uh, for my, bi- my microbiology and bacteriology counterparts, I would say they would argue that it's very hard to develop new antibiotics as well. But we'll come back to the viruses. There are viruses are I guess we, what I call them is really parasites. I call them obligate intracellular parasites, meaning they have to be inside a cell. They cannot replicate on a surface, in the air, in the water, in nutrient broth. They use the cell for many different purposes, and they modify the cells for their own purposes. They sometimes use cellular enzymes or proteins to assist them in their process. So I think that one of the challenges is, since they are really become an integral part of the cell during their replication, that you have to have something that can get into the cell without killing the cell, but can attack the virus very specifically. Uh, Well, look, I mean, new things are often based on older ones. My car is a 2016 model, and it's based on the 2015 model. And sure, it's different. It's supposedly improved, but it isn't all that different. We've had SARS. We've had MERS. We've had viral infections for a long time. Uh, and, and I think those two are basically in the same family as COVID-19. How much different 
is this virus from its predecessors? Can't we just use therapies from those earlier runs against such stuff? Well, first answer is there weren't any therapies against those earlier runs from such stuff. That's why we started these programs over 10 years ago to try to look for drugs that could attack all of those viruses and not just those viruses, but bat viruses that we know exist in nature that have the potential to infect humans. So that was our goal. I think an important point you're making, though, is that there are therapies against some other virus infections like HIV and herpes viruses like chickenpox and HSV, um, as well as now really good ones against things like hepatitis C virus. So why can't we just take those drugs and use them? And I think the idea is that if you think of viruses as families, dysfunctional families, that every dysfunctional family is dysfunctional in its own way. Their enzymes are unique. They may be highly, uh, they may be conserved in their overall roles, but they have evolved separately in each virus. And so you can't just assume that one compound that works against HIV or works against hepatitis C will work against a coronavirus. But such things are being tried. I mean, they're, they're the jumping off point. Indeed. In fact, remdesivir, one of the reasons that we continued our work with it, um, although when we first started and we got the drug from Gilead, they actually didn't tell us what it was. It was blinded to us. And so we actually tested it without any knowledge about whether it would work or not, which I really like that approach because then we don't have any bias about what we're looking at in the cell. But when we started with remdesivir, once we knew what the drug was, we were informed that it had shown activity against Ebola virus and it had shown activity against the childhood respiratory infection and other things. The same was true with EIDD 2801. They do cross families in some regards, which makes them exciting in terms of the prospect that you could have an antiviral that might work against multiple new emerging viruses. Mark, undoubtedly, uh, given the scope of this crisis, it seems to be all COVID all the time now. In the news, uh, many researchers, both in academia and in the pharmaceutical industry, I presume, are beavering away night and day on finding an effective treatment. And I believe that you, too, are burning the candle at both ends. That is correct. Um, I call it actually throwing the candle in the fire. Uh, I don't have ends to the candle anymore. Well, let's talk a little bit about the strategies used here. One line of attack has been to interfere with an enzyme, a chemical compound produced by the virus called an M protease. Maybe you could explain to the organic chem challenged what this enzyme does that's essential to the reproduction of the virus. The name was changed. The original name was 3C-like protease. Um, our, my lab was the first one to show that, actually discovered that enzyme back in 1995. So we've been studying it for many, many years. Basically, the way that any RNA virus, plus strand RNA virus works, but coronaviruses particularly, I'll keep this simple, is essentially when they go into the host cell, they don't use DNA at all. They just use RNA. And that RNA is translated by what are called ribosomes into proteins that do work. But viruses like this make what's called a polyprotein. It's essentially a string of pearls. It's like 16 proteins all linked together with little sites that link them together. One of those proteins within that string of pearls is a protease. It's called MPRO in this, in this case. That enzyme then, basically, it's like uh, thinking about trying to bite your own elbow. It goes back and it cuts that string of pearls up into individual proteins that do work. So what we demonstrated now over 20 years ago was that if you stop that enzyme by adding a chemical, that protein can't work, the proteins can't be processed, they can't do work, and the virus stops. 
dead in its tracks. So the minute you add a drug that inhibits that enzyme, you stop virus replication. All right, let me let me see if I understand that. So the RNA from the virus goes in there, it produces this long string of proteins. It's like a production line, if you will, right? And at some point, you, in order to make them you know, viable or do something, you have to cut them apart. So you have another chemical in there, an enzyme that cuts these things apart so they can go do their dirty work, right? That's correct. And the virus brings that protein in. It, one of those proteins in that assembly line, that string of pearls that I call it, is, is the protease itself. So it has to cut itself apart as well as cutting the other proteins apart. So it's such a key enzyme and it's conserved in all coronaviruses. All coronaviruses have that same enzyme. So theoretically, you could target that as a mechanism for stopping any coronavirus. So how does that uh, affect the virus's uh, modus operandi in terms of reproducing itself? It can't deploy these proteins that actually do the work? Correct. And so the big, long string of proteins can be made, but the enzyme can't function to cut them apart so they can do work. You mentioned HIV. It also has similar, it has been attacked with similar protease inhibitors that, that attack this cutter, if you will, of this long string of proteins. Why can't we just use that? Yeah, uh, that's a, a really great question. Um, maybe I'll come back to your uh, 2016 car analogy. All the cars look the same. They all have engines, right? But um, we would never take the headlight from our, or some other function from our Chevy Volt and put it into our BMW 325i. It wouldn't fit, okay? And it's really almost that simple. The HIV protease does cut across part multiple proteins that are involved in both the function and the assembly of the HIV virus particle. So do the coronavirus ones. But it turns out that their evolution has diverged so much that although their functions are similar, it's, it's like taking the headlight out of one car and trying to put it into another. It makes total sense. It's a headlight, but it just won't fit. And it's really that simple that structurally it just won't fit. And so it can't block the activity of that enzyme. Um, just make one more point about that. Lapinavir ritonavir is a combination that's a protease inhibitor for, for HIV. It's been touted. It's being used in trials. We have demonstrated and published that it doesn't appear to be very effective. And compared to remdesivir against MERS in animal models, it, it showed almost no activity and certainly wasn't as effective. So I think the data that's going to emerge is that these drugs can't just be swapped. As much as we would like to, they can't just be swapped between one virus and another. This is a bit of a clinical question, but, you know, if I was in the hospital and you had one of these uh, protease inhibitors, I had uh, the COVID-19, I'm suffering, I can barely breathe, you inject me with this uh, this thing that, you know, uh, blocks the formation of these individual proteins. How quickly do I get better? I'm just sort of curious. Yeah, that's a good question. There's two aspects to the virus infection. One is the infection itself where it kills and damages cells and really directly causes infection. The second aspect is what we call the immunopathology, meaning the body's response to the infection, which actually with SARS and MERS, and now with SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, is a dramatic component of the disease. So in the first week or so, it may be just the virus killing cells and local responses to that that cause some of the symptoms like fever and et cetera. The late complications of severe pneumonia, et cetera, are likely caused by the body and what I call essentially the body pouring gasoline to try to put out the fire. 
it's a it's a profoundly uh, they, some people call it a cytokine storm although that has to yet to be proven for this virus so the answer to your question is it depends and this is critical so if i am coming in and i have a mild fever and i'm an at-risk group and i'm just starting to show symptoms and i get a really good inhibitor like a protease inhibitor or a polymerase inhibitor early it may have a dramatic effect on either preventing my advancement of disease or or making me get better quicker it might help me if I'm heading toward a ventilator to not have to go on that ventilator or to get off it faster. The issue comes is when, but if you give it late, so someone's in a hospital and they're on a ventilator and they're at high at risk, you may still stop the virus dead in its tracks. My analogy to that is it's like um, if I'm messing around a fire and I fall in the fire and someone comes up with a fire extinguisher and they spray it on the fire and on my arm, they're going to put out the fire but the damage is done to my arm and, and you can't reverse that with a fire extinguisher. That's kind of the best way I can describe it. More from our conversation with Mark Dennison next. We're aware that we sound a little different during these days of social distancing. I'm recording in my closet, for example, but we're still here and we thank you for continuing to listen. This episode of Big Picture Science is Treating the Virus. We continue our conversation with immunologist Mark Dennison at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine about his lab's work in developing antiviral drugs to treat COVID-19. I believe, Mark, that you're not using protease inhibitors in your work, and at least that's not the line that you're following. You have another kind of enzyme essential for COVID-19 to reproduce. Is there some way for the non-expert to understand why you're doing that and what the strategy there is? Sure. Well, these are called polymerase inhibitors. These are even more vulnerable targets than proteases because they are, they are the enzyme that's responsible for copying the virus genetic material after it gets in the cell. And they are also, across viruses and within the coronaviruses, even more conserved than proteases. And their function is even more conserved. And so it's possible to identify compounds that might work across all the coronaviruses. And that was our goal. So this is an enzyme that is called an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase because it copies RNA into RNA. And RNA is built up of little nucleotides, little building chains, similar to those that go into DNA. So the drugs that we have been studying are ones that imitate one of those nucleotides. And they're, they look almost exactly like it, except they have some kind of a flaw. They have some kind of a problem um, with them. And so when they go into the RNA strand, that stops it from growing any further, basically. Or it introduces mutations that kill the virus. So that's really been our focus because we can uh, use those drugs alone or in combination. So uh, is this kind of a decoy? I mean, that the the coronavirus, you know, mistakes this for part of its reproduction mechanism, uh, and yet it, you know, <laughs> I don't know, it's like 
sex with birth control or something. I mean, it looks good, but it, it doesn't work. That sounds interesting. Okay. <laughs> it is a decoy. It, it, it's something like uh, it just like it lacks. If it was a series of train cars, let's put it this way. If it was a series of train cars. You bring in one that essentially always functions as the caboose. Nothing can go after that. Okay. There's no link on the backside of the caboose that can allow another train car to come on. That's one way. Uh, another way is, was the other one is a, that's a chain terminator, we call it. The other one would be a mutagen. And then I think of the caboose as if your chain car had to all be brown, your train had to all be brown to be successful. You bring in one that's red, essentially. And now that, tr- that, that train can't go anywhere anymore because it's not the right kind. It, it looks like it, but it's not. So those are ways that we can block it. So it's like a, I don't know, computer program where one line has been changed. So the, the whole thing looks pretty much the same, except it doesn't work. And it doesn't work. That's exactly right. That's better than a train nowadays. <laughs> okay. But what about in terms of treatments? You know, if you had to guess, where's the, the, the successful treatment going to come from? I mean, it could very well come from overseas, right? Oh, absolutely. And and if it does, um, the minute, I think, well, for one thing, a multiple drugs such as, you know, EIDD 2801, um, people licensing that drug that we tested, they're starting their initial testing for safety and tolerability of the drug in the UK. If you get in a good system that's doing this in a controlled manner, this data should absolutely be transportable. And as scientists, we absolutely would. As policymakers, they absolutely should if the studies are done well. If they're done poorly, they should also be retested and not assume that they work if, if they're not really good data. Uh, what about another pharmaceutical that has been named by the president to be effective against these viruses? And I'm talking about chloroquine. I, I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, I think it's a synthetic version of quinine, which is a very old treatment for malaria, right? There was some French study of uh, this thing, and it seemed to be efficacious at some level. Was that totally nuts, or was that a good idea? I think the issue is that I, I, it's, I cannot call the work that has been done so far to be a study or a controlled study of this, of this compound. There is evidence of what we call in vitro, that is, in the laboratory, that chloroquine can reduce the replication or can reduce the amount of virus that's made or the impact of a virus of, of other coronaviruses, of other respiratory coronaviruses, and that's work that's been around for a while. There is evidence in the lab that adding chloroquine to cells can decrease the virus. That is not the same as being safe and effective in humans. That's why, for example, with remdesivir, those studies are being done as what are called placebo-controlled randomized trials, where neither the physician nor the patients nor anyone knows whether they're getting a placebo or they're getting the drug to eliminate that bias. For chloroquine, which was a very effective antimalarial drug until resistance arose against it very broadly around the world, that trial is not a trial. It is not even a study. It is an open-label observational study where people were selected to get the drug. So there is no mechanism for understanding whether it made it better or made it worse. This was purely an observation. And so that always has to be called into question. And even in the setting of a pandemic, particularly with a drug like chloroquine, you have to be very, very careful. There are reports coming out of Brazil and other places now of people that have substantial cardiac toxicity associated with chloroquine that's being used widely. Um, it's used in Texas by some physician in a nursing home who just decided to give it to everybody in the nursing home without informing the families or even the patients necessarily that they were getting it. This to me is, is still a very, very bad mechanism. Um, and 
only creates what I call a massive anecdote, the equivalent of buying all the toilet paper in Walmart. Okay, you everybody runs out and thinks they've got an answer, and therefore they they do what's called confirmation bias, which is basically we think it's going to work, we used it, and look, we think it works. There's also a, another effect of the endorsement of this unproven uh, treatment, and that is it is a proven treatment for, for conditions like lupus, for example. Those people need that drug. So when the president says, try the chloroquine, what have you got to lose? It sounds like there really are some things that you could lose. Well, I think there's um, my answer to what have you have to lose are, are multiple. One, your life potentially, uh, because one of the goals of trials is to know, does it not just, does it not help, but does it do harm? And if you had started this trial with that in mind, and you had this significant amount of potential complications, a drug like chloroquine would never have advanced under normal conditions uh, with, with even what we know right now. Second, what, what do you have to lose uh, is the availability of the drug for people that have other conditions such as lupus that need it. That's a risk. That's the toilet paper, back to the toilet paper analogy. You can't find the drug when you need it. The third risk that I see is that you want to control a, do a placebo-controlled trial with a potentially highly effective compound. And you say, but as a, in, if you enter into this study, you will either get placebo or you will get the drug. And if someone says, why would I possibly participate in a placebo-controlled trial when we know that chloroquine works, I want chloroquine you actually lose the ability to actually study either chloroquine or other drugs in a controlled manner, which might actually tell you whether they work or not. You know, of course, people are working on vaccines. And uh, what you hear these days is that in order for the economies of the world to return to their pre-pandemic situations, you really need the vaccine. You really need to, you know, make, make it very safe to go back into the workplace. Assuming that we do develop a vaccine, will that sort of obviate the necessity for a drug for treatment? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the polio vaccine, which came out in the 1950s. You know, you didn't need a polio treatment after that. Will, will that happen with this coronavirus? Um, eradication of polio and its ability for the vaccine to work is predicated on the fact that there is no other species that supports the replication of polio. That's a human disease only. So if you can block replication, if you can eliminate the virus from a country or a region, then that virus is gone unless it's reintroduced. That's possible with this virus, depending on how immunity works. Immunity to polio is pretty much absolute. It prevents really infection and spread. That has not been the case with other known coronaviruses, that immunity is not, not what's called sterilizing. It doesn't eliminate the ability to be infected. It usually just results in less replication or disease and transmission. So uh, I agree with you, a vaccine is critical for our response. Um, I guess what we really have to have and establish is what's called herd immunity. We have to get to a place where we have enough people who are, have enough immunity that the virus can't take hold in a community and or the disease that people get from it is a disease that's milder, like a common cold, and we convert this virus into a virus that's not a threat to life and to our world economy. If I can answer a question you didn't ask, why are we in this situation? Number one, it's the virus. You know, 
when someone said once it's the economy stupid in this case i say it's the virus stupid it's it just it's brand new in humans there are 7.8 billion susceptible human beings on the planet we have never in human history experienced an event like this before where one event or certainly one virus has impacted everybody all of us talking all of the people we know who are listening are all being directly impacted by this and so we're dealing with a, a, a landscape um, virological but leading to our economic conditions that are so dramatic i sometimes think of the human organism uh, or human society as really being an organism and the virus is attached to different receptors economic social biological and it's probing all of those and putting pressure on every single system we have mark presumably we'll be going through this again maybe a few years hence maybe a few decades hence pandemics aren't new however given the scientific knowledge we're going to glean from this pandemic are we going to be significantly faster the next time? I hope so. I I hope there's durability, not just in our immunity individually and corporately to this virus, but there's durability in our understanding that the world, demographics, our, env- our involvement with the environment has changed to such a manner that these events may be more frequent. You know, three brand new human coronaviruses in 20 years. There's no precedent for that in history. And these viruses haven't dramatically changed. There's going to be data, and there is data, that these viruses are in bats. There's nothing special about them, quote-unquote, from a bat perspective. And they may not even cause disease in bats. So what's changed is the nature of our interactions with with nature. And so we are going to see these again. Um, I've been predicting them, so have many others. I would have liked to have thought that this was a rare event that might occur in a thousand years and I was preparing for something that I would never see or have an opportunity to engage in. So will it happen again in two years? I don't know. But what this says is that we are at continued risk and we ignore these things at our peril. Well, Mark, the big question. Nobody likes to make any prognostications here, but uh, I'll ask you to make one. What, What do you think are the chances that we'll have a safe and efficacious treatment for Corona-19 virus by the fall? Well, the remdesivir trials are underway, and the answers to that should come out fairly soon for treatment. Um, to me, this is sobering. Watching this for all these years and seeing the, the impact, this is my, my worst-case scenario for the coronavirus pandemic virus. It's stealth. It's capable of bypassing our understanding. It can cause mild disease and still transmit. Uh, the virus is living in the southern hemisphere and in temperate and tropical climates already. So the prospect of seasonality is also questionable. Um, I'm, I know that sounds dour, but I think we also remarkably have ones that are in process and multiple approaches that are being used. I think the possibility of an effective treatment, it may not be too far off if they work as we saw them work in the laboratory and in animals. I can't say what the virus is going to do. So it's a, it's a little bit hard for me. I think we have to keep in place one public health measures have to some form of them have to be maintained until this thing is gone. Two, we have to have mechanisms for preventing it from reentering. Three, we have to have mechanisms for preventing disease with vaccines and one other form of therapy that's called monoclonal antibodies which basically imitate the vaccine temporarily and then and then potential therapeutics. These all have to be grown and put in place and we're all going to have to keep fighting this together. Well, finally, Mark, while we're waiting for treatments for coronavirus, what's your advice for how we balance attempts 
at continuing to social distance with easing back into normalcy, as some parts of the country are already prepared to do. I'm a viro geek. I work on, uh, I'm an infectious disease person that works in the lab on these specific compounds. But as a uh, as a virologist, infectious disease person, and human being watching this, I recognize that we have to be able to maintain our society and our economy. I think the concept of easing back into normalcy maybe is sort of a false um, analogy. Um, I think it's it's carefully treading back while carefully watching for the impact and being sure that we don't use the concept of easing back into normalcy as a mechanism for saying that this virus is gone and cannot reappear in our community. That creating a false dichotomy between our need for preventing this virus and for reestablishing the things we need for our social and economic well-being. Mark Dennison, thanks so very much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Mark Dennison is a professor of pathology, microbiology, and immunology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville. Well, Seth, the big picture that we're hearing in this show is that while we're waiting for a vaccine to arrive to protect us against coronavirus, there are many other developments in the pike that may help us return to our lives in the meantime. Now, some of them draw on the role of antibodies, but others combat the virus directly. Yes, indeed. And, and, you know, that's encouraging. Multiple approaches are always a good thing, no matter what you're doing, because you never know in advance what's going to work first and work best. So, yeah, that was encouraging for sure. It was certainly encouraging to hear Dr. Dennison talk about the two Uh, approaches, antiviral approaches, that he was pursuing in his lab. And one of them is already being tested in the Chicago area, remdesivir. But something that Dr. Bhattacharya said, not in terms of an antiviral, but in terms of simply an antibody test to know whether somebody has or had the disease, was something very practical, simply the, the cost. If it costs $100 per test, you know, it doesn't matter how good the test is. You're not going to be able to give it to many people. And he's trying to get that down to $10. That was impressive to me. The other thing that came through in the interviews with these two scientists is how hard they're working, how hard all of these scientists are working. And it really struck me that when you said to Dr. Dennison, I understand you're burning the candle at both ends. And he said, the candle doesn't even have two ends anymore. (laughs) He's just burning the whole candle, you know. This is this is exhausting for the scientists and also for the healthcare workers, of course, on the front lines. As a regular listener to this program, you're probably aware that there's a lot of misinformation out there about this outbreak, including pseudoscience remedies. But others may not always be aware, so encourage them to go with the facts readily available at their local public health service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. Follow the science. We couldn't do the show without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thanks to them again for their help and for continuing to work on the show from their homes. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. 
Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the mechanisms of biology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. This episode of Big Picture Science is treating the virus. And if you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, including shows that we've done about the coronavirus. You'll also find links there to the guests you've heard. Stay safe, everyone.